What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. We know we have listeners all over the world who tune in every day or, uh, you know, on a regular basis. They are not Catholic. They have questions. You might be one of those folks. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, let's tackle that that uh, puppy right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, it could be uh, anywhere in the world, here is your phone number, 1 and then 205 271 2985. Would you rather send us an email? You can certainly do that. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky our phone screener, Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming both those platforms right now. Just put your question where you see it says comments and that's where it's going to go. Jeff will see it. He'll send it to us here in the studio. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. Are you uh, are you warm enough? I'm sufficiently warm at the moment. You've got your University of Dallas sweatshirt on. I'm wearing a sweatshirt indeed. You look very comfy. I appreciate that. I, I think that's a good thing to go. Now, um, you are a bit of a Francophile. We are going to lead off with a letter from France. Très bien. This uh, person's name is Long, and Long says, Some Protestants quote the Church Fathers in order to refute the doctrines of the Catholic Church. For example, to deny transubstantiation, I saw a Protestant quoting St. John Chrysostom and Pope Gelasius, claiming that they taught the substance of the bread remains after the consecration. It appears he was referencing a letter from John Chrysostom, the letter to Caesarius, and a letter from Pope Gelasius called Necessarium Quoque, but I can't seem to find those letters. So this Protestant's aim is to demonstrate certain church fathers contradicting the teachings of the church, thereby arguing the Catholic Church is wrong. How should we address these objections? Sure, thank you. I appreciate the question. So uh, I I am familiar with these kinds of arguments. I've seen them over the years. I, I don't find them at all persuasive because they almost always take the father out of context uh, and anachronistically. Uh, so, you know, the definition of transubstantiation at the Fourth Lateran Council occurred in 1215. The language of transubstantiation is a development, but the underlying idea, the, 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 the main thrust of the doctrine is that there is a change that takes place in the elements during the consecration um, such that one can identify the consecrated species as the body and blood of Christ. Okay. That, that 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 that's the that is the essence of the thing. All right. And I mean, the, to 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 quote all of the fathers that affirm these elements would be pedantic because there are so many that they run you know to pages and pages. Um, but I will refer you to an article published at the Called to Communion website, uh, calledcommunion.com, and the article is simply titled "The Church Fathers on Transubstantiation," and it's an excellent uh, just 
document that literally documents all the church fathers that affirm the basic elements of transubstantiation, whether or not they use the word. Um, now, in a in a in a shorthand kind of way, it's not uncommon to find references to say the bread or the wine, um, and uh, and it would because th- those are they're naming the, the the particular Eucharistic species under those descriptions, but it doesn't imply that the father in question denies the reality of a substantial change in the elements. Okay, and very good. Uh, thank you so much uh, for checking in from France. We appreciate all of our listeners uh, all over the world. Here's an interesting uh, uh, anonymous email that we received. Dr. Anders recently answered a caller who asked about the, quote, Three Days of Darkness. He had, as always, an extremely informative answer. Well, a dear friend of mine called me yesterday to ask if I knew anything about it. She has been listening to priests and has also seen ads online for kits, which include blessed candles to prepare. She told me she had heard that the three days will occur really soon and even gave me the month. I tried to relay to her what your response was, but my explanation was sorely lacking. Can you please help? Um, sure. So uh, all you really need to know is that uh, the Pope is not advocating that we all prepare for three days of darkness. The bishops of the Catholic Church are not advocating that we all prepare for three days of darkness. Um, uh, not that I matter, but I'm certainly not advocating that you, <laughs> you do that either, no, yeah. you know, nor is anybody else at the, at the network here. Um, uh, it's, uh, I mean, this is not the teaching of the Catholic faith, and it is the teaching of some... Um, individuals within the church based on yes, their own theological opinion, based mm-hmm. on uh, alleged statements of alleged visionaries. Um, but look, for 2,000 years, Christians of one kind or another have predicted the imminent end of the world and have pointed to biblical texts, visionaries, signs, the sign of the times, and for 2,000 years they've been wrong. Yeah. Right? I mean, so the the, the, the world is still here. It will end someday. Jesus says we don't know when. Uh, He will come back, but we don't know when. Mm -hmm. In the meanwhile, the important thing is to get on with the business of living the Christian life and growing in virtue. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I I think we got a call about 45 days ago Uh predicting that the three days of darkness would happen within the next 30 days Uh. on this show. So, you know, there's another failed attempt. Yep. Right? So I'm, I'm just... I'm not going to waste my time um, uh, with a process that has shown to be a failure for 2,000 years. And, you know, this has been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly uh, broadcasting over the years has been full of it at one time or another with this person saying, it's happening, I'm telling you, it's going to happen, and then it doesn't It doesn't happen. happen doesn't happen. So off we go. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your email. Glad to keep that one anonymous at your request. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, love to hear from you. The address ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Well, right now we need to get about the business of taking your phone calls. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, or perhaps you'd like to explain what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. Here's that number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We are live on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
It's called a communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Phone lines are open for you. A couple lines available still at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. As we're getting uh, some of these calls screened, let me tell you about something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It's a CD. We don't talk about music a whole lot on programs like this, but there's a wonderful new album called Merry and Bright, and it's by our very own Raymond Arroyo, uh, where he brings his New Orleans jazz roots, well-honed dramatic talents, to this heartwarming, all-new classic Christmas album. He's backed by the jazz supergroup, the NOLA Players. It captures unexplored emotions of the season and, how about this, an all-new rendition of the beloved Feliz Navidad, complete with a moving duet with Jose Feliciano. It's going to be a Christmas favorite, Merry and Bright. It'll forever change the way you experience these cherished songs. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Do check it out, EWTNRC.com. If you go to the search engine, put in Merry and Bright. I'm sure you'll, you'll see a picture of it there. It's a very, very cool album. I was uh, at the EWTN gift shop here on the campus today picking up something uh, for a gift, and and there it is. Now, Raymond looking very much like uh, Frank Sinatra. I just I was expecting him to jump out and say, hey, ring-a-ding-ding. We're going to get to the phones in a moment. We'll uh, get your ring-a-ding-ding on, and that phone number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Interesting question here from Tom. Tom says, I object to Dr. Anders invoking the books of Maccabees and 2 Timothy uh, to defend purgatory. Most Protestants reject the first reference, and I'm confused about the New Testament reference. The actual prayer is, Lord, grant mercy to the house of Onifor... Uh, Onesiphorus? Onesiphorus, which does not seem to be a prayer to a dead person. Various translations all seem to indicate the prayer is for his family rather than for him specifically. Seems to me a real stretch to claim this verse substantiates the doctrine of purgatory. What say you? Yeah, so let me pull the text up. It's 2 Timothy 1, uh, chapter 1. Hang on, I'm pulling okay. it up now. All right. Um, and it's specifically a prayer that God have mercy on Onesiphorus. All right. Um, da, 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 da. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. All right. So that's Second Timothy one eighteen. All right. Okay. Uh, the whole the whole citation he mentioned the first part. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So the context makes it, seems to imply that Anisiphorus is no more, because he's not greeting Anisiphorus. He's, he's praying for a fellow who speaks about the past tense. Yeah. And specifically that, that, uh, that it go well with him on the last day. Mm-hmm. Now, um, if Anisiphorus is dead, which seems to be implied by this passage, then St. Paul is literally praying for the soul of a dead person. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the reference to his family was quite fleeting, Right, it was, it was exactly. just that one thing there. Right, but let me also address the uh, the objection to quotations from Second Maccabees. I, whenever I cite uh, the Deuterocanonical literature in conversations with the Protestant, I understand perfectly well that Protestants don't consider these texts canonical. I, I, I understand that perfectly well. Um, so when I cite them, I say, I recognize that you don't understand this as a canonical text, 
but surely you would recognize it as representative of Jewish belief in the intertestamental period. Sure. Right? So it is, it is a witness to Jewish tradition at the time of Jesus, mm-hmm. which informs early Christian practice. Sure does. Now, the question, how do you know whether it should belong in the canon or not, is another road I would love to go down with you. <laughs> so well, you write back and let's talk about Second Maccabees and, and how we constitute the Old Testament canon and how we know what books should belong in it. Because my position as a Catholic is that the Protestant does not have a good principled way of answering that question uh, that's not circular, whereas Catholics can appeal to sacred tradition in the magisterium for the contents of the biblical canon. Tom, thanks so much uh, for your question. That opens up uh, things for you right now. If you're ready, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're going to begin with Francis in London uh, checking in on YouTube this afternoon. Hello, Francis. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom, and hi, Dr. Anders. Thank you very much for taking my call. I really appreciate it. I'm one of your biggest fans in the UK anyway. I've been listening for years and years and years. Thank you. It's been, yeah, it's, it's been a tremendous help, both theologically and, and, and spiritually, too. I mean, you've done a great work in my life. Anyway, so why I'm calling this this evening is uh, basically I have a, a friend that I used to see him at, at the Mass every, every Sunday. So one day I decided to get into conversation with him, and he said, oh, you know, I'm deciding to become either a Catholic or Orthodox. So, and then I said to him, so why are you deciding? So he said, oh, I have a problem with the studio of the plot. So I said to him, so why don't you just have a look at, first, uh, at, at the Gospel of John chapter 14, 26, and John 15, 26, and decide from those texts. He said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's easier for me to say this, but it's very difficult for him to decide. So he said, uh, he's just thinking that uh, because even in the Orthodox Church, they have union, but they have like a spiritual unity. So I said to him, but Jesus did not build a, 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 a society whereby it's spiritually, it's something that is spiritually, but something that is both physically and spiritually. So we have that unity in the Catholic Church, through the Bishop of Rome, which he said, well, it's very, very difficult. So I said, okay, I'm just going to call Dr. Anders to clarify this. <laughs> if he has to become a Catholic or he has to become an Orthodox. So he's dragged into two directions now. So I want Dr. Anders to Yeah, thank you. So Not a great phone connection. So, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't hear every word of it, but we've, we, he's got a friend, and the friend is discerning between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Yes. And, uh, and I think there's a question about, you know, does it matter if he discerns between Catholicism and Orthodoxy? And if so, what, what should I tell him? Well, you know, right off the bat, the Catholic Church uh, teaches that you can be in communion with the Catholic Church in the sense that um, the the God of grace who is at work in Catholicism is at work in your heart, motivating you to be open to being disposed to the truth and the life of holiness, and that uh, and that those in whom God's grace is at work, drawing them into greater unity with the truth— are in a kind of extended union with the Catholic faith, whether or not they are formal members of the Catholic faith. Mm. A friend of mine at the office actually shared with me a beautiful quotation from Bishop John Carroll, early, you know, extremely important American yeah. Catholic uh, bishop, um, uh, specifically to that point that we can distinguish formal membership in Catholicism from a kind of communion with the Catholic faith, and we have a we have a sort of unity with all of those whose hearts are open to the truth and seek to live according to the Word of God as they understand it. Um, uh, when you begin to, the concentric circles begin to narrow in, uh, and the profession of faith becomes more explicitly Catholic, obviously that union even deepens. And so with Protestants, the Catholic Church considers Protestants to be separated brethren, 
um, who have they they are possessed of many elements in, of uh, truth and sanctification that properly belong to the Catholic Church. They've got a lot of the Bible. They have some of the sacraments, and those are forces impelling to Catholic unity that could also be for them means of salvation. When we talk about the Orthodox. We're talking about a communion that's even more deeply aligned with Catholicism and its central doctrines and ethical beliefs and sacramental and liturgical practices. And so clearly people can be saved. They can come to the knowledge of God and and, and life of holiness in the Orthodox Church. And so if someone leaves a life of sin and becomes Orthodox and grows in the life of holiness accordingly, then as a Catholic, my only comment on that is, yay, go them. You know, keep keep going all the way to heaven and, and we wish you well. That being said, when I myself was discerning my ecclesial path, there is there are reasons that I selected the Catholic Church instead of the Orthodox Church. Uh, at root, I think that the that our Lord established the papacy as a divine institution. When he said to St. Peter, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. And, and the rest of the Gospels all confirm that Peter has this, this particular and unique role of strengthening the brethren and feeding the sheep and possess, possessing the keys. I mean, mm-hmm. This is Peter's office, which is why—and uh, this is something that's held universally, East and West Catholic and Orthodox agree that the, that the Bishop of Rome, the See of Rome, is the continuation of Peter's ministry. And, I mean, Orthodox admit that as well. Mm-hmm. And the, the foundation for Rome's primacy in the Church is not— that some council decreed it, or not because it was the capital of the empire, but precisely because it was the See of Peter. And and you will never find a bishop of Rome claiming primacy on any other basis. So every time the question of why is Rome first raised, uh, the consistent answer is because it's the See of Peter. Now, there, there were some Byzantine theologians that didn't like that, uh, but you won't find— um, uh, and they floated it, actually, at the Council of Constantinople in the 4th century. There were some Byzantine theologians that said, hey, well, you know, now that Constantinople is the head of the empire, maybe we should make that church the head of the Catholic Church. Well, that idea sunk without a trace, right? I mean, it, mm. it, it didn't go because it wasn't the Catholic belief, right? It wasn't, that was a suggestion, but nobody accepted it because it wasn't the Catholic belief. And you can find Byzantine theologians, you can find Western theologians, you can find Arabic theologians, Syriac theologians— from antiquity uh, that affirm Peter's primacy and his jurisdiction over the whole church. So that's the fundamental basis. But there are some practical considerations as well that are you know less theoretical. Um, uh, so let's say a person is uh, is interested in the question of orthodoxy. Okay, which orthodox church are you going to join? Which one? And I don't just mean are you going to be Serbian or Russian or Greek. I mean fundamentally there there. Are, Families of Orthodox churches that disagree rather profoundly with one another on matters of doctrine. Are you going to be a um, uh, are you going to be Byzantine style Orthodox and accept all of the councils that the Catholic Church accepts right uh, from that period of time, the seven ecumenical councils? Are you going to be a Coptic Orthodox? Are you going to be a Monophysite uh, Orthodox that does not accept the Council of Chalcedon? Are you going to be an Assyrian? Orthodox that doesn't accept the Council of Ephesus, right? And and how will you know? How do you know? So all of the these Orthodox communions will point to the authority of the councils uh, and to tradition to substantiate their point of view that this or that other list of of uh, of, uh, of councils is the correct one. And so it, it you fall into circular reasoning like the following: How do you know the true Church? Well, the true Church accepts the true councils. 
how do you know what's a true council? What's accepted by the true church? <laughs> right? They all take that position, right? But they can't, there's no, they have no way of adjudicating yeah. those differences, mm. which is why Christ didn't leave us with that as our rule of faith. Jesus didn't say, when you want to know the real faith, we want to adjudicate questions of Christian identity, then you adhere to, you know, the ecumenical councils. Ecumenical councils are an important organ of the magisterium, but ultimately he gave us the See of Peter as an authoritative voice that can decide these kinds of things and can stand outside that circular reasoning and give us a principled way of knowing which communion to join. Um, so, I mean, those are some considerations. There's a wonderful book on the relationship of the Church of Rome to the Eastern Churches that I highly recommend. It's by Aidan Nichols. It's simply called Rome and the Eastern Churches. And it's a historical look at the nature of the divisions and the controversies. It's, a, it's not terribly polemical. I mean, it's written from a Catholic point of view, but it's, mm. it's charitable in its treatment of orthodoxy. And I think a fair-minded read will give you a lot of perspective. All right. Uh, Francis, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much today from your call for your call from the U.K. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. A great time to call in while you can get an open line. Here is a question now from John. If Christ's death on the cross was enough for our salvation... Well, why do we need penance or purgatory? Okay, thanks. Uh, it, it's analogous to the question, hey, if this antibiotic is sufficient to cure my infection, then why do I need to take the pill, you know, with water as directed after mm -hmm. meals? Yeah. All right. You have to distinguish the, the objective act of redemption on the cross from its subjective application to the person. <clears throat> now, from the Catholic point of view, the, the point of the cross is to unite us to God— by moving us from sin to righteousness. That requires actually moving from sin to righteousness. Now, the, the, the cross provides the force, it provides the efficient and motive cause of that transformation, uh, but, uh, but you still have to apply it subjectively to your person, and you do that through faith and charity, faith and striving to conform your life to Jesus through the power of the cross. So, yes, the cross, but the cross applied to human life, applied to my subjective life means conforming myself to the image of Christ in the life of holiness. All right. And this one from Kelly. Can you explain the perpetual virginity of Mary? Um, well, uh, you know, to the extent that I can explain a miracle, <laughs> right, I can state it. Yeah. Uh, perpetual virginity of Mary is the doctrine that teaches that Mary uh, uh, was a virgin before, during, and after the parturition of the Son of God. So she's, she's never had, not only has she never had sexual relations with a man, but, but her body retained its physical integrity even through the process of Christ's miraculous birth. How do we explain something like that? Well, I don't. I just state it. It's right. really all we can do, right? right? I mean, this is, this is the Catholic doctrine, and it's something that defies nature. And so I, have, I can't give you a naturalistic explanation for how that takes place. It's something that in the power of God accomplished that I— you know, that I, I certainly can't do that. But there's certainly a lot of uh, information out there if people wanted to, uh, you know, find out a little, you know, to, to try to go a little bit deeper. There's only so much you can do on a radio show. Well, I can talk a little bit about the, the, the rationale of the doctrine. I can't mm -hmm. tell you how God did it. Um, you know, in sacred scripture, virginity is presented by Jesus and St. Paul as the most perfect form of consecration. Um, but marriage is also presented as a holy path of life. Mary has the dignity of being possessed of both of these states of life. She is both a consecrated virgin and a mother, 
right? So she is a, an icon of Christian charity and holiness to people in whatever state of life they find themselves. And that she would have the most perfect state of life, consecrated virginity, flows from the great dignity of being chosen by God to be the mother of God. Well, there you go, Kelly. Thanks so much uh, for your question. In a moment, we're going to go to uh, Gainesville, Florida, talk with Jack. We'll also talk with Tom in New Orleans. A couple lines open for you. This is your chance, 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion here on EWTN. Uh, uh, let me give you that phone number one more time. As uh, we're starting to get a little activity here, 833-288-EWTN. There is a line available for you right now, 833-288-3986. Jack is a first-time caller from Gainesville, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hey, Jack, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, My question was, why is it the case that a valid Eucharist uh, can only be valid if it's offered by a priest? Uh, a valid priest, but baptism, even though it's a sacrament, uh, can be administered by anybody. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate the question. There's a fundamental difference between baptism and the Eucharist uh, in what they accomplish in the Christian life. Uh, Baptism, of course, is the door of entry into the Church. Uh, It makes one a priest in the Catholic Church in, uh, in an extended sense. It also makes one a member of Christ's body. Uh, But the Eucharist is first and foremost an act of sacrifice, whereby through the double consecration of the elements, the bread and the wine um, represent the separation of Christ's body from blood that took place once for all on Calvary, and Christ's real presence in the Eucharist, which is not merely symbolic, uh, is genuinely presented to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world and also for communion with members of his body. So the whole ritual act has the character of a sacrifice and is in fact a sacrifice. And it is the essential act of priesthood to offer sacrifice. Um, in the sacred action of the liturgy, the, the ordained priest functions in an authoritative way as, uh, as Christ's uh, uh, stand-in, as it were. He is an altar Christus. He's there in the, pers- in the person of Christ to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of God. Um, and so he has a, a, a uniquely intercessory role um, and and that, that priestly character, that priestly charism, is effectuated principally in that act of sacrifice, which is the Eucharist. Baptism lacks all of that. Baptism isn't fundamentally an act of sacrifice um, officiated over by a priest uh, to reconcile humanity to God. It, it is the door of entry into the Catholic faith. And, uh, and, and you know, so, I mean, if you take the metaphor of, uh, you know, of entering a room, I think of the Catholic Church as you know, as, as a room with a lot of doors. And um, and if you happen to be standing at the door and somebody knocks, any old person can say, hey, come on in. <laughs> you know, once it. you get in, you know, then at the center of the room, you're going to have the priest sure. offering the sacrifice. There you go. Jack, is that helpful for you, sir? Yes, that is. Thank you very much. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you for your call. Here is Tom now, a first-time caller from New Orleans, listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, thank you very much. And uh, Dr. David, I been listening to your show for probably uh, maybe maybe five six years and it's uh, absolutely amazing you know it's, uh, great great information and I continue to learn uh, as often as I can listen uh, I am looking for uh, I have some friends that are that are uh, Protestant and uh, I even actually do a, a Bible study with them at times and they know that I'm Catholic and uh, 
but I'm, as I continue to uh, to learn from you and uh, and other uh, other Catholic sources, I'm realizing that I'm, I'm really sort of in my mind wanting to build a good a good foundation, a good uh, reasoning system to you know to argue you know why Catholic instead of instead of uh, you know Protestant. And um, one of the things I'm looking for is a uh, a good um, book about Martin Luther that sort of maybe as objectively as possible talks about um, his his thoughts in 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 you know just sort of refutes some of the some of the things that he has um, you know from a I would maybe I wouldn't call it a neutral standpoint but basically you know not where uh, you know, obviously, with from, from a Catholic standpoint, we can just you know beat it over the head, but but uh, something somewhat easy. easy sure, easy I'm with but, you. I'm with you. So let me let me say something about books that the purpose of which is to refute Lutheran doctrine. Um, you know, to a certain extent, <clears throat> you know, the, my my objective in this show is not to be overtly polemical and just spend my time bashing people that I disagree with. I interact a lot with Luther's doctrine, Calvin's doctrine, Reformation doctrines, uh, because they are points of difference between Catholicism and other and other religious traditions. Sometimes they, they boil down to very some specific ideas and some specific historical claims, and I think that some of those claims are credible and some of them aren't, and those that aren't credible I've rejected, and that led me ultimately to Catholicism. So I, I do do a certain amount of that on this show. Um, I, I, I don't have a book in my hand that in a charitable way just sets out point by point to refute Lutheranism, all right? Um, uh, you know, there, are, there are plenty of Catholic apologetics texts, and, and any one of them is going to engage with, with Protestant doctrines to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, Carl Keating's book, it's not about Lutheranism, but his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, for example, would be one that is a kind of blow-by-blow, blow, here's what they think, here's what we think, here's why they're wrong mm. kind of format, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and if you're engaging with a garden variety American Protestant, that's probably as good a book as any if you want that sort of polemical blow-by-blow. Blow. If you want a more in-depth study of the person Luther, an objective account of Luther uh, that situates him in his late medieval, early modern context and tries to get your head wrapped around what motivated Luther and how his thought developed, um, but it's not polemical, then Heiko Obermann's book, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil, is one of my favorites. And, um, you know, Obermann was not a Lutheran himself. He was a Dutch Reformed uh, historian, but he was a fairly liberal-minded person, and he, he definitely was not a polemicist and, and a denominationalist. He, he, didn't, he wasn't an apologist for Luther. He appreciated Luther. Um, but he is, uh, did as fine a job as anyone of helping you understand what made Luther Luther. Right? Mm. Um, as you can imagine, <clears throat> excuse me, most biographies of Luther are by Protestants. And, uh, and they will be, you know, more or less polemically um, engaged with Catholicism. Well, and, you know, yeah. some of them will take Luther's point of view on the Catholic Church mm. and take a dim view of Catholicism. That's just the nature of the scholarship. Um, there are Catholic biographies of Luther. Uh, one that I like considerably is by Jared Wicks, a Jesuit. Uh, the title of the book is simply Young Man Luther, and it's a study of Luther's early intellectual life before his break with Rome— that really situates Luther's personality and and helps uh, provide some appreciation for why Luther went in the direction that he went. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Timothy George, uh, former dean of Beeson Divinity School, not a Catholic, but a, but a competent scholar, and one who's 
had friendly relations with Catholics, uh-huh. has a book called The Theology of the Reformers that's not exclusively about Luther, but it's got you know a very good quarter of the book on Luther, Luther's theology, Luther's theological development mm-hmm. that I recommend. Um, if you just want a kind of explication of Luther's personal thinking, um, uh, the book by Paul Althouse, The Theology of Martin Luther, is a, is a really wonderful resource. Luther never wrote a systematic theology. There's not, there's not one Lutheran text that, that systematically presents all that Luther thought. He was, a very, he was an occasional writer who would write you know, letters and books and treatises on this or that topic. Uh, the formulation of Luther's thinking into a system was carried forward by his disciples like Philip Melanchthon and Martin Chemnitz uh, and in doctrinal statements like the Augsburg Confession. Luther himself never produced a document like that. Paul Althaus's book, The Theology of Martin Luther, is an attempt to systematize Luther's thinking by going through the very large corpus of Luther's writings and arranging Luther's thought into some kind of systematic, coherent whole. So it's sort of like a systematic theology written by Luther, although it's arranged by Paul Althaus. Okay, there you go. Tom, thanks so much for your call. Hope those are uh, helpful suggestions for you. Call to communion here on EWTN. Last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. All right, let's go to Tony now in Aurora, Indiana, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Tony, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, hello, Dr. Andrews. Thank you for taking my call. I love your program. I've been asked by one of my nephews to be his uh, confirmation sponsor, and he has chosen uh, his confirmation name as Paul, after St. Paul, and I would like to get him a book written by one of Paul's disciples, and I was wondering if you had any uh, you know, good book titles uh, for me to look at and uh, you know, where I could possibly find them at. Yeah, now when you say a book written by a disciple of the Apostle, what, what specifically are you referring to? Well, one of the Church Fathers. Oh, okay. Well, because, see, all of the Church Fathers were, to a greater or lesser extent, disciples of St. Paul. I mean, Paul Paul's theology informs all of early Christianity. Um, if you want, uh, if you just want to read a text by a Church Father who would have been influenced by St. Paul, then you, my personal opinion is you could do no better than the Confessions of St. Augustine. Um, and in that book, Paul, Augustine does interact with Paul's writings, but it's not specifically about Paul or Paul's writings. It's really about Augustine's own life. But it's, uh, um, but it's, it's probably, the, from a literary point of view, it's the most engaging piece of patristic literature. Okay. Appreciate your call there, Tony. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Uh, tomorrow, be sure and check out Women of Grace at 11 a.m. Eastern right here on EWTN, because tomorrow is Wednesday. That means it's Wacky Wednesday, as John Ed welcomes New AIDS researcher and blogger Sue Brinkman. They'll be talking about uh, some of the wacky things that distract us from the faith which is never a good thing. So do check it out tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. It's Women of Grace with John Ed Williams, exclusively on EWTN Radio. Here's a question now from Jay, listening on Sirius Channel 130. He says, "Uh, Dr. Andrews, my brother posed a question. I have no idea how to answer this. Maybe you can help. He says, how was the Novus Ordo Mass any less schismatic 
than Martin Luther's reformation of the church. The reason I raise the question is because the Novus Ordo protests against everything traditional and has opened up dialogue and calls into question all moral and traditional values that the church has taught from the time of Jesus himself, adding the new mass, in quotes, opened up a woke attitude. Any thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate that. I, I'm, actually, Tom, hand me that. So that, that. There's so many claims there. I want to make sure I can I can handle sure, this. Sure, sure, okay. sure. So first of all, the, the fundamental difference between Martin Luther's Reformation and the reform of the Roman Rite of the Mass is that the reform of the Roman Rite of the Mass was, was carried out by order of the Pope uh, in continuity with the order of an ecumenical council and was promulgated as authoritative by Holy Mother Church. That's a pretty substantial difference, right? Whereas Luther was called upon by Holy Mother Church to recant his errors, he refused, and he was excommunicated for his pains in 1520 under the papal bull Exerge Domine. So between an excommunicated heretic who was ordered by the church to recant and and a reform of the Mass carried out under the authority of the Pope and the Magisterium and promulgated at the, at the request of an ecumenical council, I think you, 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 the, the, the contrast could hardly be more stark. Yeah. Secondly, you know, the, to the claim that the Novus Ordo Mass calls into question all moral and traditional values of the Church, I, I just find that claim absurd, yeah, right? I mean, is. so I, I mean, I attend Mass uh, in the ordinary rite of the Mass, right? That It's the universal form of the Mass that's mm-hmm. promulgated by the Church, and, and every week when I go, I, I recite the Nicene Creed, and we read the scriptures that, uh, that advocate, you know, chastity and holiness and charity and care for the poor and humility and every Christian virtue that you would ever want to practice is there on offer in in the in the mass that I attend every week um and to suggest that it's opened up a woke attitude i mean for me the the, the phrase woke in Colimp- in contemporary parlance means uh, a particular interpretation of western history that is um uh decidedly uh, tribalistic and identitarian um, that's encouraged, that, that's intended to encourage to elicit a kind of hyper alertness to prejudice and discrimination or claims of prejudice and discrimination. I haven't ever seen that. I mean, I've, I, I tend very carefully to the commons and the prefaces and the readings and the Eucharistic prayer. I, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything of the sort uh, uh, emerge out of, uh, out of the Novus Ordo Mass. And in fact, what you, know, the, what you call the woke attitude is fairly recent phenomenon in Western yeah, intellectual history, mm-hmm. and uh, and it uh, of course the the reform of the mass is a good couple of decades before the emergence of uh, of, of you know so sort of woke identitarian politics. So I, I I think causally that you're making a very implausible claim there. So um, yeah, how about that? How about that? <laughs> Called a communion here on EWTN. Here's an email that we received from Abel. I heard someone give a sermon. This was a Protestant that he heard speaking on. the the power of the blood of Christ. He was also saying that if we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, believing in the blood Jesus shed for us, that this would cleanse us of our Adamic nature, as in original sin. This preacher quotes a portion of Scripture in St. Paul that says, quote, As many that believe in the blood of Christ, they are called sons and daughters of God. Is this true, and what does the church hold on this? 
Okay, so taken at face value, the way you've repeated this person's quotation, that faith in the blood of Christ would cleanse us or reform our Adamic nature, well, I mean, that that's kind of the Catholic position, right? The Catholic position is that adherence to Christ has as its ultimate goal our reformation in his likeness and image, that what we lost in Adam we would regain in Christ, namely to be in the likeness and image of God, and faith in Christ is the principal means of coming into that personal reformation. Um, I certainly don't think that believing in Christ's shed blood affects that transformation automatically. Uh, It still requires active participation on our part, a good deal of asceticism, prayer, personal discipline, and a lifetime of discipleship. We have to obey the teachings of Christ, follow his example. Uh, Participation in the sacramental rites of the Church are intended to be habit-forming, such that we reform the way we think about ourselves and our neighbors and, and our society and how we comport ourselves. And so it's a, it really is a lifelong process. But yeah, the ultimate goal of this is to reform the what we lost in Adam and to what we hope to regain in Christ. Um, there are a lot of means that go along with the shed blood of Christ. So it's not just a, it's not just a, an intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus shed blood. There's more to it than that. I mean, St. Peter tells us that Christ died to leave us an example so one of the things that we take away from Christ's shed blood is the recognition that I also might have to shed my blood or at least make significant sacrifices in the pursuit of the life of holiness and pursuit of charity. Um, but, um, but yeah. But yeah. Appreciate that. And thanks so much for your question. Call to communion here on EWTN Radio. Uh, this email now from Kathleen. Dr. Anders, I have learned that for more than a thousand years of Catholic history, the bread and wine were available to the Catholic laity. It then became more restrictive when the chalice was designated only for priests. With Vatican II, the laity was again offered both bread and wine, taking the Eucharist in the hand, the laity bringing up the gifts of bread and wine. Now, I have conservative relatives who tell me I'm wrong, that the bread and wine have always been available to the laity, and the laity have always brought up the gifts. They assert Vatican II did not restore old traditions, but rather instead created new, less respectful traditions, like taking the Eucharist in the hand rather than by the mouth. So what is the real history of the Eucharist? Yeah, thank you. So the mode of reception of the Holy Eucharist has varied throughout Catholic history. That That's what we can say. All right. Okay. Um, a Cyril of Jerusalem in his catechetical lectures, who gives instructions on how the laity are to receive Holy Communion, specifies the receipt of the consecrated host in the hand, right? So it's a fourth century document from Jerusalem that is evidence of that practice. Uh, interestingly, when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to communion in both kinds, Pope uh, Gelasius, who we were talking about earlier in the show, once mandated reception of the Eucharist in both kinds as a way of smoking out Manichaeans who refused to drink wine. So if you, <laughs> you, know, if you mandate that everyone take both kinds and there's somebody in the congregation that refuses to receive the chalice, then you can, you, you can out them as a Manichaean. Wow. Um, now, there have been other periods of history where both of those practices were changed, where communion was not received on the hand and the laity did not receive in both kinds. And there's always a, a, a contextual reason for that, right? I mean, as, as devotion to the consecrated body of Christ developed as a tradition in the Latin West, uh, along with it came a heightened appreciation for the dignity of the sacrament, 
and the care that one should have in its distribution. Now, there was always a doctrine of caring, right? And, and so you can find in the canons of the Council of Nicaea pretty strict rules about who can distribute communion to whom and under what circumstances. Um, but, uh, but different times, different circumstances, different devotional culture led to different norms. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was an extended period of time in the Middle Ages when the laity did not uh, consume in both times because they wanted to avoid the possibility of scandal should the laity spill the chalice, right? Um, and the same thing with communion on the hand. Um, uh, the the fact that that uh, liturgical law can change over time is unobjectionable. Hmm. I mean, that's fine. That's okay, right? Different contexts. Uh, it doesn't mean that our faith in the Eucharist has changed. Um, but uh, but pe- but you know, the church can have different emphases at different periods of time. That's all right. Okay. Kathleen, we hope that is helpful for you. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Let's go now back to the phones and talk with Marcus in Columbus, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Hello, Marcus. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Good afternoon. My question is actually a little bit related to the last two questions. So, uh, obviously, it's a schismatic mindset if one were to refuse to attend the new Mass on principle. But if someone were to acknowledge that receiving communion on the hand is a human apostolic practice, that it's not intrinsically bad, so on and so forth, but they were to refuse to receive communion on the hand on principle in normal circumstances, not under persecution, so on, is that also a problematic mindset? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, um, first of all, you are under no obligation to go to communion except once a year. Catholics are obligated to go to communion at least once a year. So anytime you're at Mass, and for whatever reason you feel profoundly uncomfortable about receiving communion, you don't have to receive communion, whether on the hand or in any other fashion, right? Um, the law of the Church permits for a Catholic to receive, a Latin Catholic to receive communion either on the hand or on the tongue. And so if, if there's a priest that wants to deny you communion on the tongue, he's not following the law of the Church, and I have seen such things happen, uh, but you have a right to receive communion on the tongue should you wish. Um, uh, there are people for whom uh, communion on the hand seems to them to be uh, less reverent, and so for them it becomes a matter of conscience, and the Catholic principle is always you can't disobey conscience. And so if someone is persuaded in conscience that they should not receive communion on the hand, then they should not, as long as their conscience convicts them thereof. Now, where you get into trouble is when the person with the tender conscience uh, decides to put themselves in the place of the priest, the bishop, and the pope, and turns around and condemns their neighbor for receiving communion on the hand. Mm. That's that's where we get into trouble, because the church doesn't condemn them, um, and you shouldn't either. Now, you know, I would say that um, it is possible to be attached to a form in a superstitious way. Did I just say everybody who receives communion on the tongue only is superstitious? No, I did not say that. No. I did not say that. Uh, It is possible to become attached to a form in a superstitious way. The, The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that explicitly, paragraph 2111 that it is possible to receive the sacraments in a superstitious way. Um, you know, I think the ultimate end of all of the sacraments is to unite us to God in holiness, and, uh, and it's possible to become so scrupulous about forms 
that we think that the point of a sacrament is the mechanical repetition of the act as if it were a kind of magic spell. Yeah. And and that's possible no matter where you are on the liturgical spectrum. You could be a radical traditionalist. You could be a radical liberal. It doesn't matter. If you become attached to your ideological form with a kind of absolutism, right, you could lapse into a kind of superstition. Mm, yeah. Um, the church doesn't do that. It permits both. Very good. Yeah, it's not healthy either. All right, and uh, thank you so much, Marcus, for your call. We're going to go out on this question here from Theo, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Theo says, does Dr. Andrews have an opinion on the ecumenical dialogues between the Roman Catholics and the International Lutheran Council? Sure. So obviously I am on principle in favor of all ecumenical dialogues. I mean, this is a this is a value that the Church has and expresses and encourages Catholics to be involved in ecumenical dialogues. So Go ecumenism, go Lutheran-Catholic dialogues, okay? Uh, I have not read every document that has been produced out of that dialogue. Uh, The one that gets the most coverage is the Catholic-Lutheran Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. And I will have a word to say about that. That document is true in everything that it affirms— and it doesn't affirm a lot of really important things. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. And so um, I have seen it interpreted to mean, well, hey, now Catholics and Lutherans agree on justification. There's no more disagreement b- between them. We no longer have to disagree on justification. That's not what the document says. It only lays out the things we agree on. It specifically sidesteps the things we disagree on, which mm. still exist and are still substantive. So don't make the thing say more than it says. And those things, those those big things, they actually, still matter. Of course they do, and and probably they're not going to get, you know, resolved anytime soon. Well, n- no, because it would require one or the other communion to renounce their historic creeds, which they're not going to do. Nope, I guess not. All right, and there you go, Theo. Thanks so much for your call, Dr. David Andrews. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio. 2 p.m. for our live broadcast. We repeat that for you at 11 p.m. Eastern, uh, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast. Charles will have that posted for you ASAP by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Look for the word podcast. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Have a great one. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless.